This is an ABC podcast. Hi there, welcome once more to the minefield. It's presumptuous of me, wasn't it? Once more. This might be your first time. Welcome to the minefield. However you found it, where we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life or something like that. Waleed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Hi, Scott. Hi, Waleed. Nine years in, we still haven't got rid of that slogan. No, we haven't. I mean, it's kind of right. It's kind of right. I mean, when we started the show, when we started the show, what we wanted to do was to raise the level, I think, of moral literacy in public life. Uh, One of the things I think that's happened, however, over the intervening nine years is that public conversation, debate, political contestation has become almost saturated with words that maybe are derived from a kind of moral register uh, or ethically inapt or inappropriate phrases as a way of kind of categorizing their opponents as being moral monsters or on the wrong side of history and so on. So I kind of feel like one of the things that we try to do is instead of making careful, subtle moral distinctions, maybe we still do a bit of that, but we're also trying to bring people back together again, maybe reclaim a degree of the language that's been misused, that's been misappropriated and maybe help people see things afresh. One of the things that I would, I do think about us doing is instead of kind of tiptoeing through the minefield, maybe this is the program where we try to help people see the world justly and lovingly. But that doesn't have the Ooh. ring of, you know, wow. to it. Might try that one day. But that is it. I mean, honestly, um, honestly, that is it. That is what I think we do or we should be trying to do. I don't see that there's almost any moral task that's, that's quite as great as the task of seeing the world justly and lovingly. Just trying to imagine a poster with that. It's hard to hard to conceive of. Yeah. Um, th- that wasn't just waffle from you, by the way. No, it wasn't. Because everything it's is sort there. of at the heart <laughs> of what we're. <laughs> no, it's kind of the heart of what we're discussing today. I know you talk a lot on air, I think, but especially off air about literacy, hmm. and you do it about everything. Like the the example that comes to mind is the Batman film from last year, which we discussed, I think, at length off air, though not on air. Unusually. <laughs> um, and the first thing you said about it to me after you'd seen it was that you found it extraordinarily literate. Yeah. And I just thought there is no one else in my life who would have described the film that way. Hmm. Not that they'd necessarily disagree, but <laughs> just that they, would have chosen, <laughs> okay. that they would have chosen that language to describe that film. So I, I have to, I mean, there's no point denying, today's show is all you. Hmm. This, is, this is right from the centre of the mind of, of Scott Stevens mm. that we're discussing this topic today, which I guess, well, the title is What Does It Mean to Be Literate? And I'm really interested in hearing you answer this question because I guess I've never thought about what you mean when you say it. Yeah. Only that you say it quite often. That's okay. I was imagining a much more meandering way of getting into the topic. This is terrific. <laughs> no, this, this is great. Look, literacy is devastatingly important to me not least because my entire life has been a life in the company of books. Um, I mean, some of that has to do with the solitude in which I've grown up. Some of that has to do with my natural aversion to the company of other people. Um, but it also has, it has to do with the fact, well, honestly, that there is something about what it is that we encounter in reading that verges for me on a moral encounter. Um, and this is why I guess I haven't felt too indulgent in proposing this topic for our second show of the year, because there is something about literacy that I believe comes very, very close to a description of what is at the center of the moral life. And that is the capacity to open up ourselves, to open up the ego to a confrontation with, an encounter with that which is not us. Um, Here's, I think, an interesting way of thinking about it. Reading, it seems to me, should not be, must not be, ought not be an act of consumption something where we uh, engage, we use a product, an object, and we thereby incorporate it into ourselves, or we, say, make it something that we want to use for some other purpose. Reading is not an act of consumption. You don't consume a good text, a novel, a fine piece of writing, uh, a morally serious piece of writing. It's not an act of consumption. The best way of thinking about it, it seems to me, is it's an act of encounter. It's coming face-to-face with something metaphorically speaking, that is not us, but to which we have to attend. I guess one of the reasons, again, that I haven't felt too indulgent in this is we devoted a lot of time in last year's quarterly essay to the idea of attention. And if you just sort of think about it for a moment, what are the great enemies 
of attention or attentiveness. I mean, there's haste, there's superficiality, there's characterization and mischaracterization, there's dismissal, there's a kind of high-minded or haughty disdain with which we view another object or another person. So attentiveness before another person, and this is where we used in our quarterly essay, the whole figure, the theme, the image of that interval of hesitation, that moment where we just linger with the thing instead of dismissing it. We hover over the send button before we send the tweet. That that act of hesitation, that act of lingering with something is a really, really important moment within a form of moral action or within our moral development. So you'd have to say that then rushing to judgment, uh, pronouncing something is far from being an act of moral seriousness, can oftentimes be a retrograde act. It's a way of imposing something upon something that ought to be otherwise attended to or tarried with. So that for me, the act of attention that I think is involved in any serious act of reading, it really is something coming close to a kind of moral habit. It's a moral faculty. But for me, Willie, the other thing about being literate with something is it's having a kind of store of knowledge or store of exposure that you have rumbling away there in the background. So that, I mean, the thing that impressed me about the Batman movie, I'm so chuffed that you brought that up, but also the Batman Superman movie that we, you and I wrote about many years ago now, is that there was an attempt on the part of both of these films not simply to give audiences what they want, but as a kind of love letter. They tried to dig deep into the Batman corpus. They reached for references that would have been opaque to people who hadn't read some of the sort of side avenues or side stories or alternative narratives um, that have characterized Batman as, of course, one of the most literate of all of the graphic novel characters. So when I say literate, I mean an act of composition that digs deep into a body of knowledge, that digs deep into something that already exists. Uh, in other words, producing something that is there to be pondered, that's there to be tarried with, that's there to be paid attention to rather than an object for an audience to consume. So you take those two aspects, I think, of objects, something that digs deep and also something that produces an object that isn't simply meant to be consumed and dispensed with, but rather something that demands a degree of attention. For me, those are the two sides of what it means truly to be literate, for an object to be literate, but also for us to be literate in the way that we engage with objects. The opposite of that, Willie, is, well, on the one hand, something like near consumption, say just going along and enjoying a popcorn movie. But the other side would be the reduction of text to mere information. Uh, a text is something then that you can scan, that you can skim, that you can... Uh, zigzag your way through without really comprehending. And one of the reasons, I guess, that this is such a passionate thing for me is I'm terrified, as we've touched on in many shows that we've done over the last three years, that we are on the brink of a new age of illiteracy. Um, I've sometimes described it as moral illiteracy. And what I mean is the inability, the incapacity to attend to texts that otherwise demand our attention. These might be well-written opinion pieces. These might be novels. These might be monographs. These might be quarterly essays. Um, <laughs> that's funny. But they're certainly not emojis, as we discussed in 2021. No, that, that's right. But moral illiteracy is the inability to attend to a text that doesn't simply open itself up at a glance. I mean, in my day job, when I'm not doing the minefield, I'm, I'm an opinion editor. I'm shocked consistently by how poorly otherwise literate people write, how uh, much the digital consumption habits of a age of people who have come to simply scan and skim looking for the emotional hot buttons, how much they've tailored and doctored their writing to appeal to that particular set of expectations, producing texts that are meant to be consumed and appealed to the tribe of the already convinced rather than lived with, pondered, in other words, meant to persuade. So I, I fear that both in our reading habits, we've become incredibly superficial. We are consuming gargantuan amounts of information every day, and yet we are almost entirely illiterate in the way that we're prepared to wrestle with 
tarry with difficult, complex information. Um, and in our writing habits, we are becoming conformist rather than nuanced. We are becoming indelicate and ungentle rather than persuasive and seductive and winnowing. And you put those things together, Waleed, and what we're talking about here is the erosion of, I think, one of the fundamental faculties of the moral life, which is to mean what we say, to stand by what it is we say, for what it is we say to then be left answerable to other people, and for us to be able to engage with the self-presentation of other people as something that needs to be tarried with, lived with, lingered with, engaged with, attended to, rather than simply dismissed or otherwise consumed. So you put all those things together, and that's kind of what I'm talking about with when it comes to, to literacy. And when I say illiteracy, I mean the reading habits that we've come to cultivate in a social media and otherwise digital or screen-saturated age. There's so much there I would like to pick up. It sounds like when you talk about literacy, you're really talking about depth of knowledge. That's a huge part of it, yeah. What's the difference? Well, it needn't be a depth of knowledge you already have. So, for instance, you could take a big book like Anna Karenina. You could take a small book like Elizabeth Strout's O. William. One chapter of Anna Karenin is the length of O. William. You're confronted with characters in both of those novels, say Alexei Alexandrovich in Anna Karenina and William Gerhardt in O. William. Extremely unlikable characters in many respects. And you either dismiss them as unlikable or you linger with them because there's something there and you can feel that there is a depth to the writing that invites me not to pass judgment yet, that there are depths here that I haven't yet discovered and I'm going to wait until I've either yeah. discovered them but or I've been you're saying that's wrong. only possible because of a depth of knowledge. The depth of knowledge can be, I've read enough to know that characters should not be commodified or dismissed in this way. Or that depth of knowledge can be, there is a depth here on the page, and even if I don't understand it immediately, I'm going to linger. This would be depth that's the opposite of too long didn't read, for instance. <laughs> okay, sure. Let me ask you, this question has popped into my head as you were talking. Can a pop song be literate? Oh, yes. Of course it can. How? It's designed largely for consumption. We might need to redefine or expand our definition of what counts as a pop song. Yeah, okay. I don't want to get bogged down in that. But why don't you tell me how a pop song can be literate? I think pop songs that don't simply give audiences what they want. I mean, we need to do a whole show on music. But the point of a pop song really is to give people what they want. Yeah, but there can be something of that in the tune that's played that's meant to appeal, that's meant to draw people in. But then once in there's a little something there that you know you haven't quite got. In other words, the extent to which a pop song can resist the act of consumption, that's the thing that I think makes it literate and makes our response to it potentially literate. So a Bohemian Rhapsody is clearly literate. Yes, that's right. Even though it was number one in 19 countries or whatever. Mm. And there, it's the aesthetic overwhelmingness of the performance. Even yeah, when you have no freaking idea what Scaramouche is. <laughs> You know that there's something, the word is fabulous to say, and there's nothing repulsive about hearing the word sung in that song. Right. But you're also, it's really not a pop song. No, it's not. I mean, it, it is only any, because it was so popular. Any more than Rolling Stone is, but there's something about the music that is immediately kind of seductive and winnowing. Right. Would Taylor Swift have written a literate song? I'm the wrong person to... I've hit a dead end with that. Yeah. Let, let me <laughs> make one other observation. These are just thoughts that occurred to me as you were talking. You're drawing what seems to be a very strong, quite a thick connection between literacy and morality. Mm -hmm. And at least part of your conception of literacy has to do with the quite literal understanding of that term we have, which is the ability to read. I can see there's a probabilistic relationship between those two things. Yes, yeah, that's right. But I would be stunned if there were not extraordinarily morally sophisticated people who couldn't read in the world. Of course. And I am utterly convinced <laughs> that there are exceptional readers who are morally, morally Yeah, of course. Now, I, I don't mean to do that thing where I just say, yeah, but what about, you know, this exception to your rule and therefore your whole rule's bunkum. But I wonder if there's more than an exception that goes on there. Is literacy the right term to connect to morality in, in this way? Mm. 
That's a perfect question. And I don't think I've said anything that says that literacy equals morality or literacy no, but is drawn such a strong connection between them, I think. But rather, the act of what we would describe as moral encounter, I think, is analogous in too many ways to overlook to the act of reading well or reading deeply. And the act of treating another person as mere means to one's own end, in other words, that kind of egotistic reduction of another person to a plaything or a tool or something that can be overlooked or treated with contempt. There are far too many analogies between that and treating a text as a mere source of information that one can then use, digest, and otherwise get rid of. So I think... But is literacy a metaphor there? And if if so, is it the right metaphor? So someone might have just an instinctive understanding of the moral worth of their interlocutors in society. You've met these people who just, they just have good hearts. Yes. Well, I'm not trying to say anything about moral people need to be literate people. I think what is peculiar about our age, what's peculiar about our specific time, is that we are awash with words to a degree that would have been incomprehensible even three decades ago. And yet our use of those words, our interaction with those words, is becoming increasingly superficial, increasingly utilitarian, increasingly consumptive and consumeristic in such a way that those of us then on the other side of the screen who are responsible for quote-unquote content production try to make words or make content in such a way that it lends itself to those debauched superficial reading habits that we've come to acquire in a screen-saturated age. And I think that really, for me, Waleed, is, is the vital point. There is an analogy, there is a metaphor, but I think there's also a kind of a deeper moral similarity between the way that we've come to regard people, those on the other side as being objects of contempt, or those on our side as, I don't need to listen to everything they say, uh, I support them. Um, There is a kind of analogy between that and the way that we also interact in our world of texts. So that, you know, the kind of the thumbs up, thumbs down, that's the easy point. The the more difficult point is that our habits of reading lend themselves increasingly to what is superficial, what is emotionally obvious, emotionally evocative. But also just think about the way in which uh, words, texts are being presented to us. Pieces that are characteristically written on news sites, including the ABC, are getting shorter and shorter and shorter. We no longer deal in paragraphs, but rather in sentences. Each one of those sentences is then interspersed with all manner of pull quotes or distractions or otherwise lures that are meant to keep your attention on the page. On the right-hand side of the page are all manner of distractions, links, related pieces that are meant to take you elsewhere just in case you get bored with what you're reading. All of these things are training us out of the remarkable discipline of attentiveness that I think is at the heart of literacy. In other words, deep reading, attentive reading of texts. I mean, that's not unanalogous. That's not dissimilar to the way in which we have become inattentive and thereby contemptuous towards people and the words with which they speak to us. So, Okay. uh, Yeah, agreed. Agreed. All right. So could I summarize it this way? Actually, the chief moral concern is attentiveness. Yeah. And what goes along with that, such as patience, perhaps even openness, forbearance, Mm. and so on. The withholding of judgment, yeah. And humility. Yes, excellent. So they're actually the moral resources that we're interested in. Literacy is important to the extent that it embodies those. So in other words, Mm. literacy properly acquired requires all of those things and cultivates those habits, which we might... It's not to say those habits can't be attained in some other way, as they are. But literacy does require that. And to the extent that we erode literacy, we erode one of the major training grounds or cultivating grounds for those habits. So the question of literacy and of literally how we go about reading and if we go about reading, that that remains very important to our going concern as a society not in and of itself necessarily, but to the extent that it cultivates moral habits that are necessary for a civil society to function. Mm. 
Would that be a fair summary? That's pretty fair, yeah. Ah, well, that was easier than I thought. Shall we bring in a guest? <laughs> I, I mean, there is, there is probably one slight thing that I would add. Oh, okay, of course. Um, there is nothing natural about the human capacity to read. The brain is capable... I mean, I'm, I'm not going to say too much because our guest is going to tell us about all this in ways that I can't quite understand. But the ability to read and to read well is something that has to be trained and cultivated at astonishing lengths. Because the ability to read is not natural for the human being, it is something that can be lost within a generation. It can be lost within a single person. Um, I'm not sure how much we want to say that morality is natural. Oh, no, this is a whole other show. I know, I know. And we've talked, including our Ramadan series last year, about the struggle represented by desire, the struggle that takes place within the body, between the body and the soul and so on. But the idea that there is something that needs to be actively cultivated, lest it be lost under any number of competing external pressures and internal tendencies. The idea, in other words, that moral formation needs to be carefully, carefully, carefully attended to. And there is an intimate connection between the habits that are required through reading and reading well that are so closely connected to that process of moral formation, the ability to be exposed to a life other than one's own the ability to have certain forms of virtue modeled through the text that one encounters. I think there's something there that is so morally serious that when we think about this opinion piece is emotive, it's on the right side of history, therefore it's morally good. There's something there that gets lost. And I think the fact that we are becoming uh, impatient with novels, impatient with physical books, as necessary objects in our process of attending, impatient with pieces that don't just get to the point. I mean, this is one of the criticisms that we had with our quarterly essay. (laughs) But they try to lead readers through an argument and that there's something about the leading through an argument that is indispensable to the end that one reaches, to the conclusion that one reaches. These These are all things, I think, that are so serious that we're almost at the point where I think we should begin referring to reading and reading well as something akin to a spiritual exercise. So, for instance, when Ludwig Ludwig Wittgenstein says, when I read a poem or a narrative with feeling, something goes on in me which does not go on when I merely skim the lines for information. What he's describing there is something like a spiritual exercise. When Richard Rorty says that we read novels in order to overcome egotism, what he's talking about there is something like a spiritual exercise. And I think we are, the fact that we are losing literacy amid the proliferation of increasingly superficial texts is something that should alarm us far more than it does. I think it's also why music has a similar effect because you can't hurry it. Mm. It comes at the pace it comes at. The words arrive at the time that you you can't skim it. Mm. Although people have sped up and anyway, that's another thing. Our guest is Marianne Wolfe. She's the director of the Center for Dyslexia, Diverse Learners and Social Justice at the University of California, Los Angeles. She's the author of a triptych of, it seems to me, masterpieces of moral thought over the last two decades. One being Proust and the Squid. Anybody that puts Proust and the word squid in the same title just should win an award. Uh, She's also written Tales of Literacy for the 21st Century and most recently, an astonishing book called Reader Come Home, The Reading Brain in a Digital World. Marianne, thank you so much for joining us on The Minefield. Oh, it was such a pleasure to hear your exchange that I almost didn't want to come on. (laughs) I took notes on so many different topics that you said, but I would like to make a comment. Please about the word literacy and what I, are you rightly characterized as it being so overused as to be misunderstood. And what I have suggested to people, um, first with Proust and the Squid and more recently with a real exercise in trying to understand what is deep reading. And 
what I would like to begin with is actually two quotes, one from T.S. Eliot that pulls together some of the comments that you both have made. And it's about what I would call another word for moral action, and that is wisdom. And the quote is, where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge lost in information? And I think Elliot is pointing to one of the major issues that uh, you both alluded to, and that is we are bombarded by information, which paradoxically has the effect for many people of simply learning a different way or different mode of reading. And that is skimming, scanning, scrolling, word spotting. And that is the most superficial. It is the version of literacy that is basically what happens when we first learn to read this magnificent but unnatural act. We build this circuit that is capable of putting words, perceptions, sounds, and meaning together. But deep reading, and to use the word that Scott used, is when we are taught or learn ourselves to cultivate the addition, the elaboration of that early circuit. So when you both speak of losing literacy, what I would be saying is that we are regressing to that first, if you will, reading brain circuitry that is so basic and simply gets the information. But when we add these, the panoply of extraordinarily sophisticated processes that are in deep reading, we change that circuit. And you talked about background knowledge and Oh my goodness, I couldn't help but think of, well, I guess this is a very odd thought, but how St. Thomas was saying something after the spirit of what you're talking about. He said, the merit in truly reading deeply is what I'm paraphrasing, consists in stimulating us with vehemence to participate in the knowledge of things. Now, I want to take that quote, you know, from almost a thousand years ago and say, what we're learning about deep reading is that after that first basic circuit, we are using attention. And it is essential that we really talk about attention just as you have. We are using attention to begin to focus outside of just information, but to make analogies to what we know so that we can infer or begin to infer the truth of something. Now, here is where I want to add the next very important deep reading process is also what you have talked about, and that is the ability to step outside the ego to enter the consciousness of other, whether we call that perspective taking or the various forms of empathy that are at the heart of the moral function. This is one of the things that deep reading propulses. It allows us to leave ourselves and encounter. I loved the word encounter that you used. And I will add from Proust, he saw reading as what he called that fertile miracle of communication with other that takes place in the midst of solitude. Now, this is an amazing gift to humanity from the invention of reading. It allows us to leave whatever we thought and take on. If you will, there's a theological term by the narrative theologian John Dunn, pass over into the consciousness and feelings of another. Now, this has, if you're thinking about empathy, most people think of empathy as feeling, affect. 
But there are various forms of empathy. There is affective empathy, but there is cognitive empathy. Machiavelli is the most prototypical example of an expert in cognitive empathy in The Prince. He is really helping you to understand what the other is thinking and to make strategic decisions based on that. Well, perspective taking requires time. And while I think you use the term patience and impatience, we have become cognitively impatient when it comes to using our ability to take on the perspective of others because it takes time. Now, the other very important aspect that you both, um, you didn't use the word, but it is, it's just so essential that we use the word critical analysis or critical thinking. It is the opposite of the superficial. It is what makes you able to even look at a pop song. And I, I, I took that question, I thought, oh my gosh, what would I say is an example of something that actually has layer upon layer and so much of music does have reference that only when you bring your background knowledge to it do you understand. So a pop song, I'm not going to go down, that's a kind of a rabbit hole at the moment, <laughs> but a pop song can be interpreted and interpretive according to what you bring to it. So also is poetry. So some of pop song isn't just about consumption, but it's the wedding of what we bring to it with music that that's where even a pop song could participate in this, if you will, this ability to being a critical purveyor interpreter of whether it's what is sung or whether it's what is heard, or whether it's what is read. But in reading, this is what makes it different from so many other, if you will, acts of human behavior. Reading at its best, at its depth, requires a cognitive attention and patience that brings together inference, deduction, background knowledge, and background knowledge, you might have read Alberto Mangel's History of Reading, where he says that what we do when we read is cumulative. It's a geometric progression of building upon what we have read before. That's like Aquinas, where we look with vehemence into our knowledge of the thing, of the content. But now I'm going to make a synaptic leap for you. <laughs> if you will forgive me using that neuroscience metaphor, but it is the sum of background knowledge, inference, digging for the truth of a thing or refuting it in terms that we would call as misinformation or falsehood or even worse to all disinformation. But it is the sum of the act of putting background knowledge to inference and deduction. It is the sum of connecting that to perspective taking, to critical analysis, that I would argue, Scott, directly to what I would call the contemplative function that underlies the moral heart of human behavior. Hmm. That it is that reflect, oh my goodness, you talked about lingering, you talked about hesitation. Well, I talk about that which is not at all going to necessarily happen, even in deep reading, but which is the acme, the acme of insight that comes from us having pulled all of these deep reading processes together to go after our own best thought. And I'm going to end what I've, what I've said right now with another Proust quote, which is that at the heart of reading, we go beyond the wisdom of the author to discover our own. That's what is underlying for me what is, you would call it the moral function. 
I will call it the contemplative function that is the foundation of the contemplation of moral, if you will, moral decision-making, moral behaviors. And I think Wally said that's another topic. Well, morality certainly is another topic. But what I think Proust is really leading us to is what the sum of all that you said as prologue, as prelude, as your own exchange, we are given an extraordinary gift in a bridge to the moral function, but we can lose it because it will atrophy according to how we use and deploy deep reading processes or in fact regress to those earlier circuits. Scott, this is a buffet. What do you want to do? Well, you should have said your breathless co-host is. <laughs> Indeed. Can I just point out, thank you so much for that, Marianne. Can I just point out that one of the things that underlies just about everything that we've talked about from pop songs through to novels is we're talking about an encounter with something that, pardon this way of putting it, effectively stops you dead in your tracks. And so mm -hmm. much about our reading and our consumptive habits more generally we glide from one thing frictionlessly, seamlessly to another. Now, I don't think that is a peculiarity of the digital age. W.H. Auden complained about precisely this, the frictionlessness by which one reaches the end of an article in a newspaper and flips effortlessly to the next page and keeps on reading almost passively. We find the same thing being described by Gustave Flaubert, the behavior of Monsieur Homais. Uh, the same thing is described by Tolstoy, uh, Stepan Arkadyevich, the way that we glide from one thing to another. It seems to me that rightly cultivated reading habits, and I would say rightly cultivated a kind of moral disposition that comports itself towards the world in love and justice must be open to those moments in which we can be stopped dead in our tracks. I mean, there are some songs that I know I cannot have going in the background because mm -hmm. I, I, I can no longer focus what it is in front of me. Mm -hmm. There's some things, there's mm -hmm. something about the discipline of reading novels as opposed to op-eds or, mm -hmm. or smaller... It ought to so captivate you for a period of time that nothing else can exist on either periphery. In other words, it's this capacity to be stopped dead. My God, what, what am I to make of that? What does that mean? Did I understand what that just, the invitation to stop, to wait, to tarry, even if it's, even if it's just on the brink of understanding. Um, I'm not sure I understood that sense. I'm going to go back and read and read, and read. All of these invitations to stop, to linger, to wait, to be arrested, it seems to me that these are all habits that are essential, both to the practice of one's kind of moral comportment to the world, but also in the proper engagement, call it reading, with these objects that resist kind of making themselves available at first glance. And again, Marianne, I guess, and Waleed, what, we've, what I've become so, so alarmed by is our impatience with things that mm. don't reveal mm -hmm. all of their secrets at a glance. And hence, mm -hmm. we've come to write in a way that so lacks nuance, delicacy, gentleness, that we feel like in order for something to be read by enough people to make it worthwhile, everything has to be there. In other words, we, we've come to write garishly instead of, instead of gently. Well, it has to grab you early. I, I think you can write gently, but... It just has to grab you. Yes. Is you need to... That's right. You need to... Yeah, because it, it's the logic of the attention economy. That's right. Um, yeah, I guess. But I don't think grabbing early... And I'm sorry, Willie. You are the master at this. Grabbing... Oh, no, no, no. Well, Is this a good thing? Or? No, no, no. No. Grabbing someone from the outset. It's what you then do with that that I think everything that follows hinges upon. Uh, what you do with the attention once you have it. If you simply give people what they already know and what they already want, I think there's a fundamental... You could call it personal, you could call it professional, I would even call it a moral failing. But it's, but it's that you, you have to stop. You can't simply glide on to the next thing. That I think, maybe it's been a challenge as long as there's been mass media. Uh, you can certainly see it there in, in the 19th century. But I think in our screen-saturated age, where everything we do and everything that's designed is meant to usher you frictionlessly 
seamlessly from one thing to the next so that you never have to linger for too long. That, that for me, is, is where the real danger lies. So I'm interested then in what, because so, it's only getting quicker, right? I, I listened to a really interesting briefing at work, actually, about the differences between the social media platforms. And um, I don't know the times off the top of my head, but with Facebook, for example, if you if you could get them past the first, I don't know, five seconds of the video, yeah, you right. were in with a chance. That's right. And then on Instagram, it might be three seconds. And, and now it seems like on TikTok... Getting to three seconds is a real effort. If you can get them past the first second, you probably like it's it's become that quick. So this, what this means for media companies is they'll if they're switched on to this, they'll focus really heavily on what the very first frame of their their video content looks like, because that will actually determine whether or not anyone watches it or whether or not they get the number of hits that that they're after. What I'm interested in is whether or not we have the capacity whether we're using the capacity or not, but whether we have the capacity to compartmentalise so that that is a logic that applies in one sphere of our life, albeit one that is just drowning us, but that elsewhere we might be able to somehow retrieve these practices of, mm. of patience, attentiveness, deep reading um, in whatever guise that might be. Marianne, is it is it an all or nothing thing or... Is it possible for us luckily, to retain luckily, attentiveness no. in this world? Yeah, luckily, so much lies with the intentionality of the person, the individual, and and the discipline that one has. But I actually want to take what you just said and give an origin story, a developmental origin story to what you're talking about. This is, you know, how many seconds to grab... It begins between zero and five in our cultures. All you have to do is look around the next flight you're on and you'll see the six-month-old baby with an iPad. Now, by the time that child is one and a half, it is scrolling the books that have been infelicitously given to the child. The Children who are between zero to five who are being raised on the screen are becoming the most focused attention deprived species because they, just like you said, they have to have a constant hyperstimulation going on or they get off the screen and they say two words, I'm bored. And the parent, the unsuspecting parent, gives them another dopamine lollipop, <laughs> another device, and it's more time on the device. And so we are building these children. Um, Linda Stone is the one who used this phrase first, who have continuous partial attention. And they grow up to be the tick users who who judge something within three to five seconds. They are also the ones who are switching their attention no less than 27 times an hour among their various devices or apps or whatever they're using. This is a formula for a generation of distracted thinkers. And it's not, however, to return to your question, impossible to retrain. We're not, we don't err with what we innovate. We err when we innovate without attention to what it disrupts or diminishes. And mm. that's a fundamental question right now. What is being disrupted and diminished in our young and in ourselves? And I, I can't tell you how many podcasts or Zooms that one of the questions inevitably is, why can I no longer feel immersed in my reading? It goes back to what Scott is calling the stop you dead in the tracks feeling. Well, if you have to have your attention constantly stimulated from page one on, what is going to happen to the careful writing, you know, the Italo Calvino line that it is the 
essence of writing is to find the perfect word, the what he calls the most used for the exact the approximation of the exact thought you have. What's happening is we're flattening all that by how we read. We read like an F or a Z in our eye movements across a page. Mm-hmm. Scott, you don't stop when you're doing an F or a Z. You are hastening to get to the bottom or the end of the article. You don't stop anywhere. And in the process, you miss beauty. And when you talked about a word in which we want love, you know, to have love and justice, justly and lovingly. But I would add beauty, the perception of beauty, which is affective too. Marilyn Robinson said that, that beauty of writing is as much affective as the content. Now, I defy either of you to tell me that you stopped in your tracks in the first pages of Marilyn Robinson's housekeeping, Gilead, home, Lila, Jack. No, you didn't. At the same time as this, I'm noticing a trend of people listening to four-hour podcasts. Yes, which true. I don't know if that's immersive. Maybe, I mean, I don't know how you listen to a four-hour podcast in one go. You almost mm-hmm. certainly don't, right? And maybe you're listening to it as you're doing something else. You're cooking or going for a walk. Or you're, you're driving. Most of the yeah. people are driving. Yeah, although I don't know the driving counts because there's something very automated about driving, especially once you've done it for a while. But is there not something there that shows a retained capacity and perhaps even a thirst? Like it makes no sense. If we were doing a radio show, we're pitching a radio show to the ABC and we said, it's going to go for four hours, they would laugh at us. Mm -hmm. And yet there is a thirst for this. I don't know if it's enough to sustain mass popularity or, or anything like that. But there's something there, isn't it? Something has survived. Absolutely. There is a thirst. There's a longing. And and those questions about losing that sense of being able to be immersed is a product of the longing. And I truly appreciate that audio books can give many people part of that experience. But what I say on either digital screens or audio is that you don't go back. And part of reading is, and Scott, I think you said that, you know, you see something, you want to know why, why is this troubling you? And you go back. In my world, that's called comprehension monitoring. And the reality is with the audio, but especially with digital, the affordance is to hasten yourself on. And so you don't go back. And so you miss something that could have been the very essence of the plot that gives you no ability Mm. to really from that moment on understand fully what the author intended. But I don't want to derail the importance of your question and that I will say it's not an either or, it's not an all or nothing, but it is necessary to recognize in oneself what is happening. Mm -hmm. That's my Mm. real answer to you. Mm. Look, Walid, I, I mean, I, I hope that it's, it's a both and. I mean, the medium that we work on when we're not doing this show is screens, me, written word, you, broadcasting, uh, but also written word, of course. I guess I, I hope that the pieces that I edit, the pieces that I solicit commission, I hope that there's something there that can hope to break or ease uh, or otherwise arrest the slide to something else. Mm-hmm. But the thing that I keep coming back to, and Marianne, I was just delighted. I realize we have to be very quick in saying this, but the materiality of books as such is mm-hmm. something that I myself, I've, I've never been able to do uh, screen readers. For me, mm-hmm. there is no moral encounter outside of the holding of the physical book. I cannot read as well mm-hmm. as when I've, I'm holding the physicality. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that simply as a matter of habit, to break or ease or arrest the slide. We need, if we think about this kind of deep reading as a spiritual exercise, we need to get off the one medium. We need to pick mm-hmm. up the other medium and learn once again what it mm-hmm. might mean to linger with that medium that does a little bit mm-hmm. better to 
arrest our attention a little bit better to bring us in and help us tarry with an otherwise difficult mm-hmm. text. I I want to actually say something that I am on a screen 10 hours a day, at least 10. And I know that it is the selectivity and intentionality that I absolutely have to exert in a disciplined way for me to read some things on the screen in as much as I can with the same deep reading processes. One can do that. Nevertheless, I also, by that same asking the question, what is the purpose? I don't read real novels, good novels, except when I have the materiality, the physicality of the book. Mm. Why? It's not just because I grew up like that, but because the very physicality lends itself to the spatial contribution. I know in a book, when I go, I can go back immediately and say, oh, it's a third down, it's on the left side. It's, you know, I know where it is and I will return to that. We have more spatial contributions with physicality than I think people ever realize. But there's also this uncanny spatial quality to seeing the word physically rather than the ephemerality on the screen, which you know is going to disappear in three seconds. And so there's a set towards the ephemeral, the transitory, and the speed. It's efficient, and I I have to use the screen, just as both of you have to use the screen. But I had to find out for myself, and I, if you will, my letter four in Reader Come Home is all about the examination of myself. My subject, cell size one, was most disconcerting to realize that I was pretty much atrophying at the same speed other people were. I just yeah. was as oblivious to it as I was writing on my weekends to others about. (laughs) Um, Marianne, we could go on forever. We haven't even spoken about writing, by the Mm. way, which is the other aspect of this, which I think would be, I mean, maybe that's the sequel to this that we have to do. Um, But Marianne, thank you so much for joining us. It's been great to have access to you. I'm glad that Scott hounded you until he finally managed to get you to agree. (laughs) We'll use another verb, but not on the (laughs) line. (laughs) <laughs> Marianne Wolfe is director of the UCLA's Centre for Dyslexia, Diverse Learners and Social Justice, the author of Reader Come Home, The Reading Brain in a Digital World. Our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield, Season 2, sorry, Season 9, Episode 2. I give up. I'm not going to do that anymore. Uh, we'll see you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.